I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Welcome to episode 11 of Beauty Bosses. I'm so pleased to have here with us today, Marvin Eisenstadt. Marvin, as many of you may know, is the chairman of the Cumberland Packing Corporation, which is the company that's responsible for sweet and low, sugar in the raw, butter buds, and the concept of putting sugar into packets. Marvin so graciously volunteered to speak with us on Beauty Bosses from his vacation in beautiful Santa Monica, California. So please excuse some aberrations in sound quality as this interview was conducted um, from his lovely beach vacation. In this interview, we are going to be talking about all of the issues regarding sugar, sweetener, saccharin, and the bladder cancer studies in laboratory rats, the controversies about American diet food, and everything about the idea of guilty pleasures. For those of you who aren't aware, Sweet and Low has sold over 500 billion packets worldwide. So from its very humble beginnings in a Brooklyn cafeteria, Marvin and his father built a worldwide powerhouse brand. This is an awesome episode, and I hope you enjoy it. So you're the chairman of Cumberland Corporation and the inventor? Yeah, right. It's, it's Cumberland Packing Corp. Cumberland Packing Corp. Packing Corp, right. And the inventor of Sweet and Low, Sugar in the Raw, and many other products. That's correct. Which is amazing. So I've read but, a little bit about... Let me just yes. clarify. The Sugar in the Raw is really not an invention of mine. It's uh, it's already there. It, the, the invention was the name, Sugar in the Raw, and in the Raw brand name. That was the invention, but the the, the, ter- the turbinado sugar, and it's not it's not a you know it's not an invention. It's there, so I just wanted to clear that up. Okay, so I wanted to start by just asking you to tell me how everything got started way back when your dad had a cafeteria near the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and it was after World War II. What happened? Well, what happened was that I remember uh, talking about the Cumberland Cafeteria. It was called Cumberland Cafeteria because it was on Cumberland Street in Brooklyn, right by the entrance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And when I was a little boy, uh, it was, as I said, it was a cafeteria, so my job on weekends was to give that little check out where they would punch it. Like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that in some of these, not restaurants, but um, like a restaurant. Uh, cafeterias, rather. Cafeterias. Right. Anyway, uh, I remember that he had this cafeteria and uh, in 1940. He had it in 1940, and business was just sort of, you know, not too great. But 1941, the war broke out, uh, which was, of course, not a blessing, but it certainly brought a lot of traffic into the cafeteria because it was right by the entrance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, right across the street. So I remember as a kid at 12 o'clock when the whistle blew for people to have lunch, the place was mobbed. And then at 1 o'clock, when the whistle blew for them to go back to work, the place was empty. But in that one hour, he did enough business to uh, to support four four children, 
a wife, and a sick mother-in-law. So, That's um, amazing. And yeah. so it was a tea bag factory that then transformed into a cafe. Well, well, yeah, what happened was that, that, what, that yeah. yeah, when the war ended, so did the traffic in, in the business. And my father could not make a living. There was just not enough people there. So when he was a little boy, or when he was young, he worked for his uncle, and they made tea bags. Uh-huh. Um, and so he would figure he would make tea bags, and he went to um, pneumatic, the machine that he bought was called the pneumatic scale machine, and he got that in Boston, Massachusetts. And he brought back two of these machines, and he started making tea bags. But he soon realized that the competition in New York, well, in New York especially, White Rose, Red Rose, Lipton, he just couldn't make a living making tea bags. It was just too much competition. One day he's having, he used to take my mother to a little uh, uh, restaurant or diner uh, in Brooklyn on Avenue J and Coney Island Avenue uh-huh. called Cookies. Okay. And he was sitting there on a Sunday afternoon. And my mother, and in those days they had open sugar bowls only. And my mother noticed that um, it was a little fly on the sugar uh, when they had coffee. And she, and she said to my father, you know, this is really disgusting, a fly on these sugar bowls. And also the spoons that they put in were used by other people and then put back into the sugar bowl, the open sugar bowl. Right. And that's something that we know now in 2018. We never even have that's right. to see an open sugar bowl. But so what was his great idea? So then what that is a revolutionary then, moment. Yeah, Eureka, why not put sugar in a tea bag? So what he did, of course, he couldn't use uh, the tea bag because it's too porous and, you know, the sugar would leak out. So he went back up to the pneumatic scale people and he told them of his idea and they fashioned the machine so they could use a certain kind of paper that had polyethylene on the inside, which is like a glue. And when, the, when they make the packets, the heat of the, the machine, of the seals, would melt the polyethylene really quickly and then seal it. And he came out with sugar packets. He was packing sugar instead of tea. And my father, who was very intelligent but very naive, he actually went to... Um, for, um, St. John's Law School. In those days, you can go right from high school to law school. And he went to law school and graduated first in his class in 1929. He could not make a living. So he started working for his father-in-law, who was in the restaurant business. But skipping ahead to, to 1941, when he developed the sugar packet, he goes to Domino's Sugar, which is right, was very near us, and he showed him his idea. They came to the plant and they said, don't worry, Mr. Reisenstadt, we're going to sign a contract next week and you make all sugar packets for us. And, of course, they stole his idea. And they so never that, did come is, back. that is devastating because just to back up for a second, first of all, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and the concept of sugar packets and sweetener packets was just something that I was born with. But to think about the moment when... Your dad had the Eureka moment, that, that Eureka moment to put sugar in packets is totally mind blowing, followed by the fact that the idea was stolen by a rival company shortly that's, thereafter. That's correct. That's correct. Amazing. He called the packet Sunny Seal. That was the name he gave it, Sunny Seal. Uh-huh. And he, fortunately, he went to Jack Frost, 
which is National Sugar, out of Pittsburgh, out of Philadelphia. They were a much smaller refinery than Domino, but they were competitors, and they took his idea, and they contracted him to pack to make those sugar packets for him. So that really saved the business because he was doing uh, business for the rival sugar company. The rival and, company. And he started making sugar packets for them. So he was making enough money on that to, to support his family. Um, and he, um, he's coming along. And uh, that was in 1946, no, 1941, 42. And, and so, so if, yeah, go ahead. So anyway, that's, what, that's the business he started was making sugar packets for other companies other than American Sugar. He got um, other companies to do with smaller refineries, and uh, he made enough to support his family. So that's amazing. So if I understand the story correctly, once sugar started getting put into packets, um, you guys came up with the concept of sweet and low. Well, that, that that's a big jump. Now, let me wait on that. What happened there was he's making these sugar packets, mm-hmm. and then I was, um, when I got out of college, uh, I was drafted right away, and I went into the Army in Korea, and when I came out, I was deciding whether to go to medical school. I wasn't sure, and there was a, a school that accepted me called Flower Fifth Avenue, which no longer exists. Of um, Flower Medical School, but um, my father asked me to help him because I'm a chemist. I had a chemistry degree from college, mm-hmm. and um, he needed some help. So I said, sure. So for that year, I worked with him, and while I was working there, a chemical company came to us. I'm trying to remember the name. Um, yeah, I don't remember. They came to us, and they said, would you make a sugar substitute for us? Now, in those days, it was the saccharin pills and sucral liquid from Abbott Laboratories, which was a liquid sweetener. Uh, but we were making sugar packets, so the only thing I could think of running was a granulated sugar substitute. So I did a lot of research in, in baking magazines, and in those days, the chemicals that they used to make a sweetener was saccharin, which is 300 times sweeter than sugar, and which was, in a, which was invented by the Germans a hundred years earlier. It was really used in the both world wars mm-hmm. instead of sugar, saccharin, and also cyclamate. Now, cyclamate was thirty was a, a, a an ingredient developed by Abbott Laboratories, and it was thirty times sweeter than sugar. But when you mix the saccharin with the cyclamate, it was a synergistic effect. So together they became much sweeter than each one separately. And uh, very cool, yeah, that's really. But neat. what happened when you put it in a granular form? It had a bitter aftertaste. So I needed something to try to get rid of the bitter aftertaste. And um, I finally used uh, dextrose. Dextrose is a sugar, like sucrose and lactose, but um, it has no taste. If you take dextrose and put it in a cup of coffee, the coffee will taste like dishwater. It leaches out the taste, but it doesn't add any sweetness. And so... By adding this dextrose to the saccharin-cyclamate combination, it took out the aftertaste. It gave it bulk so that I could 
use one gram of it to equal two teaspoons of sugar, and that was the beginning of Sweet and Low. Amazing. So you're, there's, there's a lot of hard science behind oh, yes. this extremely uh, popular product. So that correct. is that's pretty and, amazing. And then what happened was that we decided to make it pink so that if you put it in we, our first customers were restaurants because we had all these sugar packets in restaurants. So we had an entree into restaurants, not into supermarkets. And um, we made it pink so that it would stand out against the sugar packet and they would know that it wasn't sugar. And we called it Sweet and Low because that was my father's favorite poem by Tennyson. Uh, and in 1900, they took that poem and they made it, they put it to music called Sweet and Low Over the Westwood Waves. It's an actual song. And, and that's, so that's why there's a little trouble musical. on the uh, right. correct. That's correct. And we called it Sweet and Low. And, um, and in retrospect, uh, the decision to make a pink packet was brilliant because it's so distinctive. Like That was my idea. Packet, you know, <laughs> that means sweet and low. It doesn't mean anything else besides That's right. Low. In other words, you could, we have competitors now, of course, and they'll ask for sweet and low. They might give them the other competitor, but they would think it's, it's us. And in the restaurant business, that, it doesn't hurt us too much because people assume that it's sweet and low, and so we still get the recognition, even though it might not have our name on the packet, because they just, they don't realize that it's not sweet and low. But we do we are in a lot of restaurants, of course. Yeah, and I was reading that in addition to restaurants, that um, sweet and low was also in hospitals at that time because yes. it was. It was marketed for diabetics. Diabetic. So can you tell me a little diabetic. bit about that? Well, yeah, we um, there was a, there was a hospital near us that I went into, and I told them, you know, that diabetics can use this, and people that are obese, and that every time they use it, you know, uh, two teaspoons of sugar are about thirty six calories, and by using this, it's less than three. And so if they have three or four or five cups of coffee a day, they really save a lot of calories. And the hospital began to take it in. And one day I get a call, and we were in restaurants. And one day I get a call from the A&T, which was the largest retailer in the country at that time. And they said, what are these pink packets that we see in restaurants? I went down to the Gray Bar building where the A&T was, and... Um, I told them the whole thing, and they, the next month, Sweet and Low was in, in retail, in 100-packet in, in, in boxes for retail uh, on every shelf in A&P. And, and let me explain that they put those on the shelf for nothing. The way things are today, they have what is known as slotting allowances, and if I wanted to go nationwide with any product, it would cost me a million dollars just to get it on the shelf. And then in six months, if it didn't go the way they wanted, they take it off. So uh, it was a lot. in those days they put it on for nothing. So that was kind of an amazing opportunity because yes. if you think about it, up to this point, the concept of you know the guilty pleasure, like wanting to be skinny but still eat sugary, right. was just kind of emerging in America. And right. the idea of desiring some kind of indulgence without gaining weight was kind of a new concept in the zeitgeist. It was. In fact, our first advertising was on the buses in New York. We had a very uh, comely woman's face 
on the billboard, on the bus, and the statement that she made is, I call my sugar sweet and low. And that was our first advertising campaign on New York buses. I love that. It's so simple and elegant, but it like really conveys what you mean. Right. So that was the beginning of, of something that we really never thought would be such a tremendous success. It In a way, it. you know, a lot of people attribute you and your family to the boom of diet foods in America. Well, actually, actually uh, you, in a way, you're right. But what really started the diet revolution in this country was TAB, the diet soda TAB. That started the diet revolution in this country, uh, a low-calorie soft drink. And, of course, we just rode along with the wave. But it was the soft drinks that really brought the attention to the public because they advertised heavily where we couldn't afford to really advertise. So it was the soft drinks that really started the diet revolution in the United States. And now over 500 billion packets of sweet and low have been produced and sold in this country and around the world. That That's correct. Incredible. <laughs> You're right. It, Do you ever sit back and think like, oh never. my God, I never, from, never, 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 from never. cafeteria to 500 <laughs> billion sold. And, you know, when I walk in the street, I still look on the ground to see if there's any torn packets that people use. Yeah. Well, you know, I think of Queen Low kind of a guilty pleasure because um, it's sort of the concept of wanting to have have your cake and eat it, too. You know, you want your coffee. Right, yeah. and then you can have your cake. you don't want any calories. Exactly. Right. But so, they make it up with the cake. <laughs> exactly. Do you have a, Do you have a guilty pleasure? Uh, nah, uh, what? Hold on. Ross, do I have any guilty pleasures? <laughs> I guess mentally I do. <laughs> how do you How do you take your coffee? I take my coffee with a packet of sweet and low. Honest to, God, honest to goodness, I do. And in fact, um, if you use sweet and low over a period of time, when you try sugar instead, it won't be sweet enough for you because you, your taste buds develop the taste for sweet and low, which is, which I guess, it, it, the 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 nerve. You know, the first thing a baby tastes is sweet. The, the milk, the mother's milk, is sweet, and it's on the in the front of her, the baby's tongue, and so that's the first sensation that you have as uh, when you're born is sweetness. That's so. It's so primal, right? It makes yes, that's right. It's, prim it's, it. it's primal. It really is. So your company expanded into the in the raw franchise in the early 70s. So that was sugar in the raw, stevia in the raw, agave, monk fruit. Right. And what's, raw, organic what's interesting flavor. what's interesting about that is that when I came out with sugar in the raw, and the reason why I call it sugar in the raw because it's the closest thing to raw sugar. Uh, to, to get a little chemical history there, when you get the cane, they squeeze the cane and they get sap. They put the sap in a centrifuge, and it crystallizes, and that's why it's called carbonado sugar. And those sugars are covered with molasses with a lot of dirt and stuff, and they steam clean that sugar and that sugar in the raw. It still has molasses on it uh, as compared to white sugar. And that's become really popular amongst um, people in the past 20 years, um, right. particularly in urban areas. 
And the thing is that if you try to get that trademark today, sugar in the raw, they would say it's too descriptive. But fortunately, back then, they didn't do that to me. So we got the name, and now uh, we, we couldn't get that name today. But we use the in the raw label on other products now as well, as you just mentioned. Which is very cool because it also taps into this. Right, it's descriptive. It tells you what it is. It, it tells you what it is, but it taps into this sort of societal impulse toward organic and right, natural, and absolutely natural right. types of things. Correct. In fact, we're coming out with we've come out with a white organic sugar. That's just starting to show on the shelves. Organic, the organic market is really growing in this country. Yeah. You know, what's really remarkable about what you guys have done is that you've sort of found a way to tap into the cultural zeitgeist of a few different, kind of vastly different things. Because the concept of diet foods and guilty pleasures and indulgences for free is very different than the concept and the feeling behind wanting pure organic in the raw types of sweeteners. That's but true. you guys are doing both. So it's, right. it's kind of amazing. Which one do I Yes. So, it, you know, there's something for everybody. Right. And so your company has also um, done some really interesting things with other food substitutes and derivatives like butter buds and natra taste and sweet one and new salt. Correct. Correct. How do you we, feel about the expansion in those areas? Oh, they're very good. Butter Buds is one of my favorite products. Uh, it's um, uh, most of it. We, the plant that we have for Butter Buds is in Wisconsin, and um, the um, uh, the granular Butter Buds uh, is very good. Like on it's, Butter Buds doesn't melt because it doesn't have any fat. It dissolves. So if you put it on like a salt would dissolve, if you put it on fish or meat or anything, it has to be hot uh, to dissolve on the product. And it really is a natural butter flavor. It's real butter. So it's, it's but, it doesn't ha- but it doesn't have fat and calories the way real That's butter. correct. It doesn't have fat or calories. Correct. So it gives you kind of all the psychological and taste buds Right. Of butter. And if you ever look at ingredients anywhere and it says natural butter flavor in the ingredient, that's our products, butter buds. They don't cool. want to use our brand. They so want all that microwave popcorn and all of that kind right. of stuff. Correct. Oh, wow. So uh, all those movie theaters and stuff. Too. Right. Well, you know, movie <laughs> theaters, that's where they make their money at the candy counter. They don't really make it with the movies, they make it at the counter. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's 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 it's true. So one thing that I thought was really interesting about your company was um, the fact that you guys have managed to weather a bunch of storms. So in the 70s, there were these controversial um, scientific papers that have since been debunked um, and proven flawed, but there were these papers about rats and bladder cancer and saccharin. And how did that affect your business? And now that the studies have been proven flawed, how do you feel about how... Well, that's an interesting story. What happened was when they they fed these, they're called Sprague Dolly rats. This was done by the sugar industry, by the way. Uh, Sprague Dolly rats, which if you look at them the wrong way, they develop cancer. And um, they use these rats 
and fed them uh, uh, an amount of saccharin that would be like uh, 10,000 packets of sweet and low every day for three generations. And it was only the third generation that the rats developed bladder cancer. And But on that kind of science, which is not science at all, they were, they were going to ban saccharin uh, and cyclamate, which was, uh, which was in this, uh, saccharin has been in, uh, in use for over a century. Uh, but what we showed was that when they fed these frayed doily rats this tremendous amount of saccharin, out of three generations of rats, 14 male rats developed bladder cancer. And because of the Delaney Amendment, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that amendment, it's an amendment that says that any food additive that causes cancer in man or animal must be banned. So they use that Delaney Amendment to ban saccharin, to ban cyclamate. By the way, in Canada, cyclamate is still used all the time. But anyway, they banned these two products. And um, what happened was that we showed that these rats developed bladder cancer because they had so much saccharin that they developed bladder stones, and these stones caused cancer in 14 male rats out of three generations of rats, talking about three or 400 rats. But on that, they, they were going to ban it. But we showed that the reason why they developed these bladder stones is because of a certain chemical in the rat's urine, and we don't have that chemical. So because we don't have that chemical, they never ban saccharin. Ah, so the whole basis of these studies was kind of flawed in terms yes, and of using it by the sugar in, and by the sugar industry, by the way. Right, um, but your business recovered from that hit, and you know, yes. seeming, seemingly just without missing much of a beat. Well, well, not only that, but I remember clearly that when they were going to ban saccharin, um, I was on the radio there, on television, on the different stations. There's an alpha called the Calorie Control Council, which is like a lobbying group. And they sent me around New York uh, because I lived in New York. And I remember um, Channel 2 at that time, CBS. I'm standing there ready to go on. I was very, very nervous uh, because I'd never been on television before. And the lights were very hot. And Betty Furnettes, who used to sell refrigerators, I don't know if you ever heard of the name, but she sort of calmed me down, and the next thing I know, these lights are on me, and uh, Frank Fields, who was the science editor or the science guy for CBS, and all he was, he was a weatherman. He didn't know the first thing about science, but they gave him that title. He comes with tele ticker tape, which they no longer have, now they've got facts. And he said, well, you're going to, and he, the lights are on me, and he says, what's it like, Mr. Eisenstadt? He put out a business, the FDA just banned saccharin and um i thought i was going to faint <laughs> but i got i can imagine yeah i got angry because of the way he hit me with it you know it really wasn't fair so, and because i got angry my blood pressure went up and i went into <laughs> all these this situation about how stupid it is and how and, and i said little kids are going to go into drugstores and they're going to ask for a soda now they can have a diet soda and have with their peers their friends, but now there won't be any more diet sodas, and they're going to order sugar soda. You're putting kids in danger, and it went on and on. They let me talk as, as long as I wanted, and I was on every station that night uh, going through the same story, and um, there was such an uproar from the public that Ted Kennedy, 
who I happen to know also, passed, made the, passed the law to save saccharin, but we had to put a warning label on that this causes cancer in, in laboratory rats or something. But uh, that, that warning label only lasted a few years. In the year 2000, they passed a law called the Sweetest Act, which showed that the rats develop bladder cancer, not from the saccharin, but from the bladder stones, from the chemical in the urine, which we don't have. So we took the warning label off. Would that? Would you say that that was one of the most challenging times in your absolutely, professional absolutely. career? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Were there any other times in your professional career that were big challenges or roadblocks for you? Uh, uh, let me think. <laughs> um, every day I mean, is that's a, a big one. So yeah, every day is a challenge. <laughs> uh, but that was about the biggest. The others we we weathered, and I uh, can't think of anything as dramatic as this. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Do you have any advice for young people who are interested in entrepreneurship or starting a business? Well, um, the first thing, if a young person wants to start a business, he first should do a tremendous amount of research, depending on what the business is, and to see what competi- what the competition is, uh, you know, look at the competition, um, and then make a decision what the profit margin would be, <laughs> because if they start against another product, they probably have to get a lower price, and then what the advertising might cause, and then also... Uh, what the the, um, the desire of the public for the product? You can get certain uh, papers that supermarkets put out to show how successful on every shelf each item is. So they should do a lot of research, and then they have what is known as a focus group, where you can take fifty or so people that they just take off the street, show them what your product is, and let's see what they have to say about it. So it's a lot of doing your homework. It should be. I mean, you can be lucky and come out with something right away, and uh, it'll be successful, but that's that's rare. It's rare. I mean, in terms of marketing and advertising, I think you have done such a brilliant job with Sweet and Low and all of these affiliated brands. Um, do you have any kind of secrets or pearls about how you tapped into what people like? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, some of it, of course, is, is luck. But the thing is, as I said, you have to do research. And what you have to do is go around the supermarket yourself and and, and try to imagine yourself or your partner or whatever, what is not on the shelf that, that could be. Because you can come out with products that are unique and that are, that are not Me Too products you have a chance of success. And don't forget, when you do come out with a product, you have to convince the supermarket to take it in. And uh, it's not an easy thing now with the shelves being so stacked the way they are. There's not very much space for new things unless they're really unique. And then also you're dealing with multi-billion dollar companies that do a lot of advertising and you're against them too. So it's difficult and challenging to get your product if you're an individual, again, uh, on, this, on the shelf. 
Yeah, you know, one thing that I think is very interesting is how industries can be so derivative of each other because just in virtue of creating the concept of the sugar packet or the sweetener packet, you kind of have paved the way for huge multi-billion dollar businesses like Starbucks and, you know, the whole concept of coffee in the third space would not be able to exist without packeted sweeteners. That's true, and what I gotta say about Starbucks is that they do buy our products. If you, any Starbucks, they have sugar in the raw, they have sweet and low, and even have a new product called Stevie in the raw, which is a new sugar substitute, other than saccharin. So, Starbucks has been very good to us. But you're right, you know, they helped us, but we also helped them sell more coffee. Do you have any interesting, cool plans for the future? We are, well, we're always looking for new products, new ideas. Right now, I'm looking into, um, in South America, they have a patch of flowers that are made of stevia. Uh, stevia is a, uh, is, a, uh, is a sugar substitute, and it comes from a plant. It's a natural product. And my theory is that if the bees go to the stevia flower and from the pollen go into the hives and create honey, will that honey be lower in calories? And um, that's a project I'm working on now. It'll take about five years to see if that does occur. But if we could have a low-calorie honey that really is honey, I think that would be a bonanza. That's amazing. That's such a neat idea. So that's just one of my ideas. Have you ever thought about taking your company public, or do you... No. uh, uh, The thing is that uh, I myself never wanted to go public. And as you know, um, as you probably... We we get calls all the time to go public. Now my two sons are really running the business. uh, And I come in every day, but they're the ones who are really running it. I try to give them ideas, and I make sure what they're doing is right. But they're, they're the bosses. And so far, they... They're holding strong to keep the business in the family. Now, if that will continue after I die, I don't know. I don't know. But right now, it's a family-owned business, period. Okay, amazing. Um, Well, I was just wondering... What I tell the boys boys is that how much money... Do you really need to live comfortably, be nice? And if you're going to sell the business, you're selling your soul. And if you, I mean, different if you want to go out of the business and not have your kids come in and so forth. But think twice about selling it because you can only make so much money. If you make enough, give it to charity and what have you. And uh, try to be independent as possible because if you sell the business to, to someone, eventually they're going to squeeze you out or your children out. Yeah. Has the way you think about business changed now um, as compared to when you were, you know, a young kid right out of the Army helping your dad develop these products? Right. Well, it's changed. It's it's much more uh, bottom line than it used to be. I mean, bottom line is important, but if you don't do the bottom line, people go. (laughs) It's it's a cutthroat thing today. It's... business is not as soulful as it was when I started. And now, if I understand correctly, you guys employ about 400 people? Uh, That's changed also, and and that's my son's ideas. Um, 
Yes, about a year ago there were 400 people, but today we outsource the manufacturing to an outfit in Minneapolis, and uh, which the, the, because of labor, it's a, much cheaper than it is in New York. So we outsource it. So we have about 100 people, but the manufacturing is done in, the, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, um, my pleasure. And, it's uh, so amazing to hear your story and to think of how you built this enormous, extremely powerful brand. And it's not just a powerful brand, but it's almost an emotional brand because people have a relationship with their morning cup of coffee and tea. And, you know, sugar, as we were saying, is so primal. But, um, you're right. You're right. You've kind of created something that has a place in so many people's lives. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for that. <laughs>